1: Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence Communication Secrets of the C Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Socola, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions, and author of Speaking to Influence Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest today is Charles Stiles. He is president and CEO of Business Evaluation Services and is on the executive board of directors and the immediate past president of the Mystery Shoppers Professional Association. Now, does that sound familiar to you? Either the name or Mystery Shoppers or anything along those lines? Because I got a story to tell you about the connection that we had with it. But first of all, Charles, welcome to the show. Laura, thank you for having me on today. Now, mystery shoppers, this sounds a little clandestine. Give us a real quick, for anybody out there who's going, I feel like I know what this is, but I'm not really sure. What is mystery shopping? Well,
2: mystery shopping is, it's funny when people ask, they have no clue what it is. So really they're anonymous guests, if you will, that we send into retail businesses, restaurants, to really have a guest experience and provide feedback based on how they were served.
1: So if I have a company, whether it's a a clothing store or a restaurant or something like that, and I need to get a better sense of how my store is performing, how my people are doing, if, if there's problems with, you know, I don't know, money disappearing or something like that, or we're hearing a lot of complaints or losing people, and I want to know why, then I would hire you to send in people undercover, either as new hires and trainees or as guests, uh, customers, et cetera, and then they'll come back and report what they have experienced. Is that correct? Yeah,
2: yeah, basically, in a nutshell, yes. So businesses have a perception of how they're treating their customers. The question is, really, are they matching what they're stated, you know, what they state, how they're performing? And so we'll send anonymous guests in to really evaluate how they were served. And, you know, are they really matching what they're stating as the guest experience should be?
1: So that's where the business evaluation services comes in from. We're actually going to experience your world and tell you what we found.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So when we conduct, you know, a lot of different market and brand audits, competitive intelligence studies, you know, and services really range anywhere from mystery shopping, compliance audits, social media, brand management, voice of the guest surveys. You know, we really serve a variety of industries ranging from hospitality, retail, banking, financial, big box chains, all the way into the medical and health services, pretty much everywhere in between. So basically, if a company has a service, we offer a solution to help them understand their marketplace and how they're measuring up to what levels of service they believe they're providing.
1: Now, you had, so if anybody out there is listening and you're going, okay, this is ringing bells, but am I connecting the dots correctly? The answer is yes, you are. So Charles, for the better part of a decade, you had a show on the Food Network, and lots of Food Network lovers out there like me are, I saw the show Mystery Diners, and you had 11 seasons running, is that correct?
2: That's correct, 11 seasons, about 145 episodes, I believe, somewhere around there.
1: That was amazing, and I remember watching that show avidly and, and religiously and watching where you'd actively go in and set up a sting, effectively, setting up a sting operation in. The restaurants, and it was, of course, food networks, it was just restaurants, not stores and those kinds of things, but cameras and people going in with like eyeglass cams and and wires and whatnot to capture conversations. So it was really quite the clandestine operation. Then you'd have a giant room full of monitors and and other equipment in some other place nearby where that, where you'd be doing all the surveillance. Was that? Did I recall this correctly? Am I describing it right?
2: Yes. Mystery diners on Food Network, correct.
1: So much fun. So, and can people still find that on foodnetwork.com or something? Are there all those episodes that they can go back and check out again?
2: Yeah, you know, and I think they have it on different channels as well. I know that it shows up on Netflix and other, you know, stations as well. Currently, I think it's maybe doing some reruns, but it's not currently in production at this moment.
1: So, so much fun to watch as I highly encourage people, if you're just looking for something fun to watch at night that doesn't have political overtones, doesn't have, you know, people aren't dying. It's not all the horrible stuff that you see on TV. You just want something fun watch Mystery Diners. So, okay, how did Charles and I end up coming to have this conversation here? Funny little conversation. You say, they say you got to pay attention and luck is when preparation meets opportunity. I was sitting in my home in Philadelphia about 10 years ago, a little something of 10, just about eight, something like that, and looking out my kitchen window. And sure enough, across the street, I see somebody there standing on the corner and you look kind of familiar. I'm thinking to myself, I know that face kind of looks like the guys on my television on Friday nights or whatever night it was. And sure enough, you know, I walked outside afterwards and you were there uh, in the cafe across the street, getting a cup of coffee. And I thought, I'm going to introduce myself. Why not? And look at that. Now, 10 years later, we're still in conversation and now you're on the show. And I thought, yep, there it was. That was a lot of fun and a nice surprise, frankly. So I like to tell everybody that I picked up Charles on a street corner in Philadelphia.
2: (laughs) Yes, you did. It's actually true.
1: Yes, yes, it was. And uh, but see, look at that. Just goes to show everybody out there who's like, oh, I'm not good at networking. I'm not good at introducing myself to people. I'm not good. Just do it. I mean, really, what do you have to lose? He didn't know me from Eve. I didn't know him. I walked away, and he was like, "Who was that idiot that just said hello to me and told me she liked the show I'm on?" Okay, you know, so some random stranger who I'll never see again thought I was an idiot. But really, is that likely? Not so much. So look, look at what can happen if you do take that first step and say hello to people. So we have this great conversation. Let's take it in and get down to business. So tell us a little bit about what's your favorite part of your job and why?
2: That's a good question. The answer to that is going to the bank because that means I get paid.
1: (laughs) I think that's everybody's favorite part of their job, but that notwithstanding.
2: No, but just getting old. You know, really the favorite part of my job is really working with a variety of companies and industries and learning what their pain points are and partnering with them to provide solutions that help them build and sustain a customer-focused service culture. You know, whenever a company reaches out to us, we know there's a reason that they're calling us. And it's our job to ask the right questions to better understand what those reasons are and to help them find solutions for their pain points. Sometimes they're receiving negative reviews, they're hearing customer complaints, seeing their numbers decline, and, or, you know, have implemented some type of a, a training program and they need a solution to effectively measure the success of the training they put in place and provide them with feedback on what needs further focus or additional training. So really, you know, favorite part of my day is really helping other businesses succeed.
1: Yes, yes. I think that's most of us are in that kind of role of just, I think people can lose sight of the importance of wanting to help whoever your, your internal or external customer that you're serving is your heart still in the service? And when it is, what would a difference that makes? Now, with all of this, what's one of the biggest issues of the day? And how do you have to adjust your approach when you're talking to different key stakeholder groups about it?
2: Well, I think one of the biggest issues that, you know, seems to all industries are facing and are impacted is that no one seems to want to work these days. Hmm. It doesn't matter, you know, what industry you're talking about, the consistent thing that you hear from all businesses seems that they're struggling Finding people that are willing to get out of bed and simply go to work, you know. And I'm not sure what happened, but you know, prior to COVID, it didn't seem like it was such a big issue. But now that things are starting to normalize from the impact of COVID, it's a struggle to motivate people to go out and go to work. And you know, one of the cha- challenges that we personally face as a business is that, and we face this over the years, is getting our customers to understand the costs associated with providing our services and adjusting our costs based on the economy is. Costs continue to increase, we're predominantly an independent contract business model. And we have to rely on our independent contractors to conduct our field work. And now that all industries across the board are facing the same issues of having people, you know, not wanting to work and having to pay them more money to get them motivated, it, it's opened the doors for us to now help them to see the struggles and the impact for us as well. And our approach has quite honestly been communicating the challenges that we have with them and being transparent. And that if we're to be successful in helping them, we have to adjust our compensation to motivate our ICs in order to provide the services that they rely on. And that has been one of the biggest things we've had to face and you know, kind of where we're at today.
1: You mentioned that it's primarily an independent contractor-driven business. I don't think I would have understood the magnitude of that statement until a couple of weeks ago for everybody out there, Charles invited me just this past month, to be the keynote speaker at the industry conference. So to be speaking to all these leaders who run the mystery shopping organizations, the providers of the mystery shopping services, I I was talking to some of the people there and on average, for each of the providers, or, or even just across the US broadly speaking, how many mystery shoppers are employed and by the organizations that do the contracting?
2: Well, I mean, that's a real hard number to put your, you know, to put your finger on. I, I can tell you this: we have about 1.2 million registered independent contractors in our database that we can work with at any given time. Depending on, you know, what the project is, we have the largest resource, I believe, in the industry. I, I would say roughly there's probably 1.5, 1.7 million total mystery shoppers in the United States, Canada, North America as well.
1: It's a huge number. It's just a huge number within a single and it's not just that there's a lot of contractors out there, but there aren't a lot of providers. So, you know, one of the uh, one of the your colleagues that I spoke with, he himself employs 1.1 1.2 million contractors in his database. I mean, that's amazing to think with it we have a lot of people, a lot of employees. If you have 1000 employees, if you've got, you know, some of the clients that I work with have 100,000 or more employees around the world. 1.1 million contractors that you can use in your database. That's a lot of people to manage.
2: Yeah, it, it is. And, and it's you know, important to kind of understand that not every one of these individuals are being used by myself or them at any given point in time. Mm-hmm. Our industry is very alluring. So a lot of people hear about, oh, mystery shopping, how do, I, how do I do that?
1: Sure, get paid to shop, get paid to eat. Sounds great, sign me up.
2: Exactly. And so you know, they'll register with us and get signed up. But that doesn't mean that they are actually active and working. But we do typically about every year go through and remove people that have not had an assignment in a year or so to keep that database under management. But there effectively is about 1.2 million people that are somewhat engaged at some level. So,
1: so it's a lot of people to have to coordinate with and to negotiate these kinds of terms with as well.
2: It is. And, and as I was just stating a few minutes ago, the, the biggest impact is getting people motivated to turn the keys in their car to go out the door. Nobody wants to put their feet on the floor anymore. I don't know what it is. You know, we had one of our other keynote speakers at the session, which you got to hear as well from uh, AJ Tusa, Poppy from the New Orleans Creole Cookery Restaurant. He has his opinion on what has taken place, as as you heard. But, you know, we won't go into that. It's a funny story, but we'll leave that one alone. But that really is the, the plaguing industry challenge everybody has now, whether you're in the flooring industry or the grocery industry. I mean, effectively, you walk down the street to any restaurant and you see a sign almost on every one of their doors, we're hiring. And, you know, that didn't used to be the case. So
1: yeah, no kidding. And and in all of this, who's the toughest audience that you ever had to get through to?
2: Through my years as a young man in my early 20s, I worked for a post-secondary educational trade school and I was working as an admissions director and I had developed a recruiting strategy to bring on new students into the school. Which was working wonderfully. I mean, I, was, I had increased our, our student enrollment significantly by the marketing strategies I'd put together. After about six months after I had started this, you know, this new concept, the owner of the school had hired a new dean of education whose philosophy was the best man for the job was employees from the school where she worked from last. And after bumping heads for a period of time, I decided that, you know, it's time for me to start my own business, And that was really one of the first businesses that I had started. And so I stepped out on my own, started the student recruitment business and offered it to other schools. And one of the first schools that I approached had about 30 locations. And when I first met with him, you know, the owner was very resistant. And I'm sure some of that came from my age. But he asked me a question. He said, why would I take a chance on you? My answer was simple. I said, if I don't bring you any new students, you owe me nothing. There's no upfront fees. All you have to do is simply agree to pay me. For each new interview that I bring in the school and a separate fee for every new student that enrolls. You have nothing to lose. And he thought about that for a moment and said, Well, if I have nothing to lose, then how why would I say no? So we made an agreement and we started with one of these schools. We went to see how that went. And after, you know, a couple of years, we pretty much were doing all of their schools. So, you know, that was a tough audience to break into because I was a young man. But it was really about confidence in myself and solutions that I had to offer them. And I held my ground, and so that that was probably one of the toughest audiences. You know, it was a twenty-two year old man sitting in front of a, a seasoned school owner and having that conversation.
1: Now I'm curious. Was so it sounds like you were you, what you were offering him was a commissions only model. Effectively, I bring someone to you, I get paid. I don't bring anyone to you, I don't get paid. And was that how you had originally structured the the, the system, or was that something that you? Pivoted on the fly to try to get him to come down and meet you.
2: I mean, really, that was the business model. I had already effectively been running that for the school I'd been working for, and it was working phenomenally. And so I was confident that no matter where I took that concept, it was going to work. Nice. Thankfully, it did because I spent a lot of money out of my pocket with the advertising and the marketing to make it happen. So it could have easily gone the other direction. But I, I you know, like I said, the, the proof was in the pudding and already. Put that concept to work. So,
1: and it sounds at that point, once you've got your your skin in the game, you really need to turn it around. So, it's great motivation for those out there who are on that independent track. Well, Charles, this brings us to the influence challenge of the day, and this is your opportunity now to talk directly to our audience and challenge them to take one step that they can complete within 24 hours to have more influence. How would you like to challenge our listeners today? Well,
2: one of the issues that we face each day in our business is. You know, the constant letdowns by outside contractors, the independent contractors that I mentioned, you know, in our previous comments, but for various reasons, you know, sometimes these ICs, when they take on an assignment, they don't complete them as they promise.
1: Mm.
2: Unfortunately, that's kind of a thing we have to deal with in this industry is people take on assignments. And then for whatever reason, the dog ate their keys for the 10th time, you know, the car doesn't work, whatever the case may be, they're sick. And when that happens, our internal staff is required to scramble at the last minute and fill schedules with other available contractors. And, you know, one of the challenges is that it gets exhausting for them and, you know, it makes it real easy for them to express frustration and sometimes make negative comments to other teammates such as, Great! They flaked again, or I can't believe these people, or whatever it might be.
1: Meaning, some of the contractors that you have to call on to do the fill-ins last minute are the ones who burn out because they're the dependable ones that you keep going back to to clean up somebody else's vacancy or mess.
2: Yeah, but not so much that I'm talking about my internal employees, those that actually okay. handle the scheduling and the quality control and the management okay. on a day-to-day basis. You know, because they're the one dealing with these independent contractors, and you know, they make promises they're going to go out 30 days and take care, you know, whatever the assignment is, and they don't. And so now they're scrambling last minute to make sure, you know, we're fulfilling our clients' needs. And it's easy for them to to get frustrated and, you know, like I say, make make comments around the office that really shouldn't take place. And I mean, we literally just had this conversation on this past Wednesday in our office meeting. And during our meeting, somebody made a comment about people flaking. And immediately our operations manager took that opportunity to remind everyone that, even though it's frustrating, they need to refrain from negative talk as even small comments can influence everybody else's opinions and have a negative effect on how we communicate to those that we have to rely on. And my challenge for the next 24 hours is really for those listening to be conscious of your words, you know, any negative comments that you may make. Correct them on the spot. And if you know you're involved in conversations with other with others that have negative comments that are being made, rather than doing the easy thing, which is engaging you know, into the conversation, take the opportunity to interject a positive perspective and try to influence others to see things from a different angle.
1: Just watching the tone, watching the negativity level in the conversations too, which is not to say that you shouldn't acknowledge where there are problems or challenges or something that needs to be fixed, but there's a difference between that and whining or complaining as opposed to bringing up a problem and suggesting solutions. Am I drawing that line of demarcation correctly?
2: You are. I mean, because that's the easy thing to do is to just fall in line with those that are engaging in negativity. And it's really the leaders that take the time, the opportunity to, to say, let's flip this. Let, let's, how do we turn this into a positive? And let's, take, let, let's look at it from a different angle.
1: And it really does change the tone, change the energy, change the culture of a, of a team or an entire organization when there's a lot of just overall negativity and just complaining, valid or otherwise, with regard to whatever they're complaining about. Something about the way that it's discussed can really change the feeling and just of connection, of trust, and whether or not it's a enjoyable place to work for.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's always been one of our policies is that we don't engage in that. We don't allow that. And, you know, we always try to keep things at a positive level. But even on a best day, everybody has their moments. And so, you know, it's always good to be reminded. So,
1: yes, yes, 100%. And we want to make sure. So, all right, everybody, you've got your 24 hour challenge for the next 24 hours either watch yourself and keep from allowing those complaining, negative comments to come out, and or if you hear someone else using them, try to counterbalance that a little bit with a positive intention or something else to help redirect the the tone of the conversation before it spirals downhill. Did I I interpret that instruction correctly, Charles?
2: All
1: right, great. Well, then moving on from there, tell me about a communication-related mistake that you've made. And if you could have a do-over, what would it sound like?
2: Well, (laughs) you know, if we're all honest with ourselves, we've all made communication mistakes of one way or another. But after high school, I was attending college. One of the, I think, probably the biggest words I wished I could take back in a do-over I could do, you know, I worked part-time in the evenings and weekends at a jewelry store as a salesperson. And again, I was young and not one of my proudest moments. So Anybody listening, please extend a little bit of grace as I share the story. But, you know, one day this lady walks into the store and indicated, you know, whatever it was that she was looking for. And through the course of conversation, I wanted to be, you know, more personable. And I asked her when her baby was due. Oh, countenance changed. And she said, I'm not pregnant and turned and walked out. Ouch. Yeah, it was kind of an ouch moment. I learned a lot that day about making assumptions and being careful about what you say. You know, if I had a two over, I would have sounded more like, So tell me about yourself. Do you have any children? Are you planning on having someday? And you know, really let her show whether she was pregnant or not. And had I taken that approach, I think the whole experience for both of us would have gone a lot differently. But that was my lesson. So I don't know if that was what you were looking for, but
1: (laughs) I think that's a pretty big one. And I think all the uh, every HR rep who's listening right now is going, "Oh my gosh, the yellow flags are flying and the uh, sirens are going off." And yeah, those that's a definite one that I think too many people have experienced and. You know, pregnancy is such a, a challenging situation, whether to discuss it or not, and just sort of note to self to everybody, perhaps stay away from anything regarding body types and, and just leave it at that. When in doubt, stick to the topic. How about the, what kind of jewelry are you looking for and why, for example, and stay safe. So, yep, that's, everybody out there just went, ouch. Yep,
2: yeah, just one of those assumptions, so.
1: every And look, he has clearly recovered quite well in his career, so there's, everything is recoverable one way or another. Then. What's an approach went that you've used to address an accountability issue with someone on your team? Now, you've already mentioned that with the contractors involved, the, the ICs, as you called them, that look, people flake every now and then. It's hard. They may agree to go and, you know, shop and evaluate a particular store and then not do it for whatever reason. So whether it's about them or an employee or somebody else, how have you dealt with that accountability for somebody on your team?
2: I'll give another analogy story, if you will, from, uh, from the mm-hmm. shopping side of my world. You know, one of the key areas that can determine success or failure in a business is ensuring clear communication, you know, with our customers. and making sure that we ask all the right questions before we set up a new project to eliminate any potential avoidable issues or misunderstandings that could take place. And that's two-sided. Sometimes that is dealing with the clients that we work with and those that we serve as well as the independent contractors, the internal employees that, you know, that manage and work and, and conduct the audits itself. And so one of the short stories I want to share is a lesson that, you know, we've learned over the years that has helped us really ensure that we have clear communication, you know, on all fronts. And as I mentioned, you know, the mystery shopping service into variable industries. Well, one of our clients is a retail ballet dancewear company, and one of the locations is in New York. Well, as part of Every project or client that we work with, we developed a set of guidelines on the client's expectations of like what the guest experience should look like for every customer, as well as the do's and don'ts of conducting their audits. Well, one day I received a call from a district manager who was clearly very upset about an incident that took place in one of our stores that had to do with one of our mystery shoppers. She set the stage by first saying that they believed 100% the report that was turned in, that the shopper shared exactly the entire experience as it took place. You know, she went on to explain, however, that the circumstances that took place and to share that the girls were freaked out and they didn't want to help the shopper because it was a male customer who came in who was trained, sorry, who was trying on women's tutus and women ballet clothing. So as a result, the shoppers reported, you know, a poor guest experience, rightfully so. Well, as you can imagine, you know, the female employees were rightfully freaked out. You know, the client was not mad at us, but simply wanted to communicate the issue and ensure that it never happened again. And as a result, we had to create a new role for that client that only females could conduct these shops going forward. And in turn, we had a had to have a conversation with the shopper and explain you know why they could no longer do these types of shop for us in the future. And then also we had to have an internal discussion with our scheduling team about ensuring that you know they're setting up the right profile of the mystery shoppers. That they select for assignments and that made sure they match the demographics as a typical customer. So, you know, that's an interesting story that took place, but it's something that that helped us grow and learn, you know, really on how we effectively communicate inside. So
1: it's funny to, because I think the most important point that you mentioned in that is the idea of if if you're especially trying to do something undercover and you want to identify what is the typical client experience, then to ensure that the people who are working in this store are behaving in their usual way, on the one hand, then we should send them someone who reflects the the standard customer to know what the standard experience is like. That being said, if nowadays, I would almost imagine that there could be value for certain organizations to say, okay, well, you know what, we're trying to expand our customer range, our demographics. And we want to be more inclusive. We want to have more people from various backgrounds and, and whatever it is to come to our store and to buy our stuff and to feel welcome here, et cetera. Are our people treating them the same way with equal respect and courtesy and whatever else? Then to be able to say, you know what? Send me people who are every shape, size, color, square, circle, triangle as possible, except this traditional you know, three foot by two foot Box of a person kind of a thing just to see what they do but the i what i think what i'm taking away from this is just remembering the importance of having the conversation to set expectations and ensure that when you know who you're looking for or what you're looking for that you articulate that clearly and that you you double check that you have interpreted it clearly of, of what the appropriate avatar would look like if you're going to get the answer that you're looking for you, you can't if you If you don't ask the right question, you won't get the right answer back. Am am I hearing that correctly? Yeah,
2: that is exactly correct.
1: I can imagine, especially for this particular studio, did they work with adult clients as well or was it mostly like children? Because if you're used to working with kids sort of 18 and under, and so that's even the age thing on top, and then you get a 50-year-old man coming in and trying on tutus that are intended for children and whatever else, that it just adds that many more layers of something's off here
2: yeah no i mean they you know obviously work with adults as well and again this was in new york so they do have you know the ballet theaters and so
1: <laughs> which also at that point you think if it's in new york then they should be even less surprised at the wide range of people <laughs> who come into the stores that's the beauty of new york
2: but not normal for a for a man to come in and put on you know the women's clothing and stuff so talking with the this individual auditor their feedback was that they do Broadway shows, they do cross-dressing and that that's normal for them. They understood that that's not normal for our clients. And so, you know, they understood why we wouldn't be sending them back in, but that was their side of the perspective is that that wasn't odd for them. So sometimes you have to really kind of adjust and make sure that who you're serving, how you're serving them, you're, you're matching those stated needs and, you know, in, in all around. So,
1: yes, yes. Identify what are the needs, articulate it clearly, make sure it's mutually understood, and move forward from there. It's so important and often such the the catalyst for a lot of confusion and consternation, to say the least. But what about succession planning? So if somebody in the organization wanted to move up into a more senior leadership role, aside from technical expertise, what's one skill they'd have to demonstrate and why? Well, I
2: mean, effective communication is is a critical component, and and that's verbal and nonverbal. I mean. You know, effective communication comes from listening and hearing what your expectations are as you're going through an organization, but also your body language. You know, those are things that are cues that are people picking up on. So, I mean, it's really if somebody's going to grow and move into a senior leadership role, effective communication from our organization is a key factor. But also, you know, taking ownership for mistakes that they might have made and finding solutions to correct them to make sure they don't happen again, you know, rather than making excuses why it happened, but how it, you know, how it's somebody else's fault. So really, you know, for us, it, it's really pride of ownership in your work, taking ownership of mistakes, making solutions and effective communication. Obviously the technical skills, those are things that can be taught, but certain things that are interpersonal really can't be as easily taught. It has to be something that comes from within.
1: The irony that soft skills are hard. And much harder to teach in many ways because it goes against the grain for for many people about how they reflexively want to respond to things. And, And we can't always indulge those reflexes, can we? We cannot. Finally, Charles, as Peter Drucker famously said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. What's one communication pattern that's had a big cultural impact, whether positive or negative, on a team that you were on?
2: Well, I mean, one of the key things I would say is, you know, let your yeses be yes and your no's be no. You know, make sure your words match your actions because more is caught than what is taught. You know, and another one of my careers in my younger days, I sold business equipment and the company I worked for had a manage, management change and they brought in a new sales manager from another region. And, you know, the first days of his arrival, he sat down with every employee from the sales team all the way through the technicians. And he shared his vision for the company and his expectations for our work performance. And he made it very clear what those expectations were and ensured that nobody had any questions after that interview about each person's understanding about what was expected of them you know, before that meeting was concluded. And I remember coming into the office, it was on a Friday, about two weeks after we'd had those meetings. And I came back in late afternoon, probably around three or four o'clock from appointments all day. And the receptionist was really upset. I could tell something was wrong. And I asked her, you know, what was going on? And she pre- proceeded to tell me that, you know, Kevin, the new boss, had laid off almost the entire sales team. Or actually, he did lay off the entire sales team and a, a, great, por- a great big portion of the technicians. Wow. She said, and he's waiting for you to come into his office because he wants to talk to you. I'm going, OK, great. I guess that means I'm fired, too.
1: Happy Monday. Yes.
2: Yeah. Happy Friday. You know, so I guess <clears throat> uh, I guess I know what I'm doing this weekend. Yeah, you know, like I said, I was certain I was next. But I walked into his office and, and I, I just said, "Hey, I, I heard that you let go a great deal of the entire team, you know, including all the other salespeople." And he asked me to sit down, and I'm like, "Okay." So, and then he proceeded to ask me one simple question. He said, "What were the expectations that I laid out for you?" I shared our conversation and said, "As far as I know, I did everything you asked of me." And he said, "I was the only one on the sales team that did exactly what he had asked me to do." And I wasn't losing my job that day. And he communicated his expectations and I followed him. You know, he taught me though that when you share your vision or expectations, you have to be clear in your messaging. Verify that you that you're being understood. So there's no misunderstandings. And when you follow through and that you have to follow through on your work. And you know, there's no room or place for being wishy-washy in the business environment that you know, because doing that causes anxiety and uncertainty in the workplace. So I've learned as a leader, it's important that you demonstrate by actions and that I'm also following the same rules that I require of those that I lead.
1: I would imagine that that's something where he probably thought he was quite clear. And obviously, you understood him correctly. But you know, had he just taken a couple of extra steps, he could have saved himself a lot of headache by at least retaining some of the people and not having to replace virtually his entire sales staff at that point.
2: Well, honestly, he, he was right in his actions. Because, I mean, everybody was running rogue. Every, I mean, people were just goofing off. I mean, the, the numbers were down. That's why they brought him in. They, they knew uh. a big turnover needed to happen. And, you know, he he's one of the, honestly, he's probably one of the biggest leaders in my past that I, that I still look back to is how he demonstrated his management skills. I mean, I mean, even in the sales role, he would tell me, you know, I'd come back from meeting with a client. He'd say, oh, did you close the sale? Well, no, they, I'd have an excuse of why I couldn't get the, get the order that day. And he said, you know, he'd tell me, he said, okay, I'm going to give you two days. And if you don't have that order, I'm going to go back out and I'm going to get the order and you're not going to get a commission. And he did that to me probably about six times. And it really taught me, I better start asking for the sale. So he had a way of, of his leadership skills, but he did what he said. And he was always very clear in in what, uh, what he expected. So anyway.
1: And you get tired of doing all the work and then not getting the commission when somebody else does the final six inch putt.
2: Well, you know, a lot of it was about building confidence yes. in, in yourself. Uh, you know, one of the things we were at a big leadership conference and the, one of the owners of the company came up to me and said, I love your suit. You look great. And I, I said, oh, thanks. You know, I really appreciate it. I bought it at Ross or whatever it was. And He came <laughs> up to me and said, why did you do that? You had him. Oh, take ownership. Say thank you. Don't. Don't give excuses.
1: Yep. Yep. Don't, and, and, you know, we don't even hear the stuff that comes out of our mouths until it comes out sometimes. Like, why did I need to tell them that? I just should have said thank you or it doesn't need to know where it comes from. But I just suddenly told you that I was a, a Ross shop. And look, I buy plenty of stuff at Ross. Lots of us buy stuff at Ross. Ross is a great store. Nothing wrong with Ross. But if you're trying to set a certain image and these people think that they only want to do people who shop at Nordstrom's and their Nordstrom quality services, to then add those other things, if it's the wrong person who's not going to connect with it, you know that's they're going to say, "Nope, I only I only do business with Nordstroms." So, oops, that's always a, a good point too, right? Don't overshare.
2: Yes. Somebody gives you a compliment, say thank you. Don't make excuses
1: and just leave it at that, right? Don't disclaim. And I think that's a challenge for a lot of people too. How to take a compliment? A lot of people dismiss it. Say, oh no, well, it's just this old thing, or you know, it was a handmade, whatever it was, and. For that matter, you don't need to go brag and say, hey, it's from Nordstrom's. Are you impressed? Oh, yes. It's my, my third Armani suit this week. It don't need to go the other direction either. Just say thank you graciously. Follow the KISS principle, right? Keep it simple. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, Charles, thank you so much for joining us today. How can people learn more about you and mystery shoppers? Well,
2: if anybody wants to learn more about our company or myself, they can go to our website which is www.mysteryshopperservices.com.
1: Well, Charles, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And to everybody else out there, thank you as always for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode and don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, your platform of choice so we can help even more people increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And finally, if you want to download my free guide to Equipment Recommendations for Virtual Influence, including my picks for microphones, lights, and more, go to to speakingtoinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Socola and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Hi everyone, this is Dr. Laura Socola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode, and please go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal.
0: Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite, the show for leaders who want to speak with impact.